Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. ElixirConf US 2020 is concluded, and now the keynote presentations are available online. Check out a link in the show notes for a link to a YouTube playlist where you can see those. You cannot yet see all of the presentations that were given. A couple additional things you can see there are some of the lightning talks. There are some very interesting ones where Chris McCord is showing some new live view uploads, and Jose is talking about API changes and things coming out in Elixir 1.11 and just the state of the community there. Another item is following on with that is talking about Elixir 1.11 release candidate was released. We've previously talked about what some of the features are in Elixir 1.11 with Wojtek Mach in one of our previous episodes. You can find a link to that in the show notes. But that is something exciting that I've been looking forward to for some time. All right. So ElixirConf has concluded. And right after ElixirConf, SpawnFest started. And SpawnFest is a 48-hour code hacking marathon. And lots of projects, uh, exciting projects came out of SpawnFest. So I'm going to list a couple of them here. We'll go through it quickly, so pay attention. Here we go. We got Continuum, which is a new queue system based on files and how email is organized. That's interesting. Jago is part of that project. We have Shaker. The project here, Shaker, is uh, is about converting your Rebar 3 projects to Mix. Pretty interesting. We have Beamwork. Uh, the title here might actually be uh, Spotlight. Phoenix Live Dashboard Graphs on Phoenix Response Times. That one looks pretty slick. Check out Bakeware. Bakeware produces self-contained cross-platform executables for Elixir and Erlang. So if you got a little Go Envy there, uh, this might be an interesting uh, project to consider. Currently only supports uh, macOS and Linux, so Windows and BSDs not yet, but maybe you can contribute to that. And lastly, that I'll mention here, there's another one called Uncharted. Uh, it's a dependency-free, LiveView-powered SVG charts. So if, you're, if you want to produce charts with, uh, with LiveView, you might be tempted to go reach for some JavaScript-powered um, libraries to render your bar charts, line charts, pie graphs, that kind of stuff. But maybe you don't have to anymore. So check out Uncharted. There's other projects that came out of this. Um, so go look at the GitHub organization SpawnFest. You'll see a whole list of things there. Uh, lots of interesting stuff came out of it. And it's pretty amazing. This is 48 hours of people hacking on this stuff. So very short time span. And the benefit is so great. So this is amazing. Thank you for everyone that contributed to that. Apart from SpawnFest, uh, some other news is a static typed language announced by WhatsApp and the uh, Facebook team. It's not released yet, but they announced it, that it's coming. So check out some show notes and slides where they talk about it. We also talk about this in an upcoming episode with Quinn Wilton. So uh, check out that episode when it releases. Yeah, just to mention that they're specifically saying is they have a statically typed Erlang. That will be very interesting to see what that looks like and how different properties hold as you talk about distributed computing and clustering and everything. So very interesting to see what comes out of that. You can check out a link to the show notes where they have some of the slides available. Another item is ElixirConf EU will be held the 7th and 8th of October with training being held on the 6th. It will also be a virtual conf, so it's not too late to reserve your tickets. Another big announcement, just-in-time compilation comes to the Erlang VM. Specifically, this is talking about a project called Beam ASM, where it's able to generate machine code on the fly and execute that code. 
We don't have a lot of the details on that yet. Right now, you're able to take the Erlang Beam and run your Elixir projects on it and just compare and do benchmarks of before and after and see what kinds of process improvements you might get. It will impact different types of projects differently. For an example, uh, the Elixir JSON library, which is for JSON parsing, now it beats the pure C library Jiffy, which is very impressive when you're using the JITID code. And RabbitMQ, which is an Erlang project, has been reported to gain a 30 to 50% throughput increase from this change. There is a link to the PR in the show notes, which has some interesting documentation and explanation behind it. I think this one's going to be one to watch. I just looked at the PR and this means nothing. So it's just an interesting stat, but good Lord, it is merging in 181,000 lines of code <laughs> and taking away about 8,500 lines of code, uh, the, you know, as of today anyway. So g- good luck, reviewers. <laughs> uh, very excited about it, though. What I think is interesting is just seeing people say, hey, I tested it on my project and I'm seeing this kind of improvement. And one of the things to keep in mind is that it will have more impact on tight CPU bound operations and less impact on things that are more communication based. I think the target for that one is OTP24. Uh, lastly, in news, and, and this is Erlang related news, we have uh, two wonderful packages that are released or uh, recently updated. One of them is Erlang Language Server, Erlang LS. Uh, that's now available to bring Erlang code insights to supporting editors. So check it out. Uh, and lastly is Erl Format or ERLFMT. It's a Erlang language syntax formatter similar to Elixir's uh, code formatter. So it pays attention to the AST. Um, yeah, check it out. If you're writing Erlang, I think these are going to be invaluable tools to you. It's always great to see developer improvements come into Erlang as well. I know Elixir gets a lot of attention, but Erlang is is the basis of which Elixir is is great. So it's good to see uh, improvements across the board. Yeah, so there's a lot there in that news. So check out the show notes to find the links to the ones you want to follow up with. And that's it for the news. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Ricardo Garcia Vega. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me to the show. I learned about something that uh, Ricardo was doing, which I thought was really interesting. Cade first kind of discovered this and, and saw what was going on with this blog post that you wrote. And I, I had to have you on and kind of help us understand this because this is just cool. You wrote a blog post called Headless CMS Fun with Airtable and Phoenix Live View. So you're already including Live View and the service called Airtable. It's just a whole kind of mix up of stuff that you don't typically think of, at least not me in the traditional sense of building a web app. Before we jump into that, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of problems are you solving? So I live in Spain, in Europe, in Spain, in the northern coast of Spain, in a region called Asturias. And I work at Calify, which is a company where we offer mobility as a service. We offer users the best you know, the transport, which uh, best suits their, their needs. And we're changing the way people move in the cities. Nice. And are you guys using Phoenix or Elixir there? In our tech stack, we use many technologies. But, and we have, you know, like this huge uh, Ruby monolithic. And we are, well, within, during years, within uh, separating it, in different microservices, and mostly of them are made in Elixir and in Go. 
So we use Phoenix and Elixir a lot. That's interesting. So you're taking this big Ruby Rails monolith, breaking out mm -hmm. the microservices using Elixir and Go. That's interesting. Are you using, I'm just curious, are you using a message bus to communicate between them or is it rest communication between the services? Well, and what's, what it, like? it, it depends on the use case. Um, but we use both. Depending on the cases, we, we use both. It's quite interesting. And um, we're also hiring. So <laughs> if any of the listeners is interested in working with us, you can go to cabify.com slash jobs and you can see there our jobs. Now, I'd love to jump in and kind of understand what it is that you created here. So first, maybe you can just kind of explain what Airtable is as this external service and kind of what, what service they provide. Yes, so Airtable is a software as a service. The main concept is having these spreadsheets that you can think about them as uh, databases. But the cool thing about it is that they have a really nice user interface where you can edit and insert the data in many different ways and you can create a lot of cool stuff uh, using their UI. Another cool thing is that they have an API that you can use to fetch your data or update your data. This is the reason that I chose to use it. Interesting. So I know business people and business people, they totally think of a spreadsheet as a database and they treat it like that. <laughs> so I can totally see that this would be an awesome tool for specific use cases. It would work really well. You know, so my first question would be, well, well why wouldn't you just use like Google spreadsheets, you know, Google Sheets? And I can see that one of the, especially from your article, one of the main reasons I wouldn't want to do that is because the API access that this allows. I think that's very interesting. Cade, maybe you could give us a little bit of a, your experience uh, when you were first kind of looking at this and playing with this, what did you see? Yeah, I feel like Airtable is like Google spreadsheets on steroids because it is just a spreadsheet, but like every column can have a very specific type and then you can't deviate from that type. Whereas in Google spreadsheets, you could format something as currency, but then that doesn't stop anyone from typing in ASDF into it or whatever, right? And so in Airtable, you can say like, this is an upload column, and then it completely removes the ability to type in anything into it. And it just gives you a little button to click to upload images or, or files or whatever. And then their API is super nice, as he said, whereas the spreadsheets API, the new version, not very many people are fans of, and they're kind of forcing everybody onto it. So it's nice. It does have its freemium model is restrictive. It's like a limit of like 5,000 rows or something. I can't remember. It's something pretty small. If you wanted to put a lot of data into it, it wouldn't work. And then if you're not paying for it, you're also limited to like three requests a second or something, which isn't too bad. But overall, it's really slick. The UI is super nice. I really like it a lot. I've, I'm always looking for reasons to use it. So it sounds like Airtable marries the idea more of a spreadsheet and a form more together, you know, versus separate because Google Docs kind of separates that more. So Ricardo, maybe you can kind of share, you were taking Airtable and you put something with the front of it, like a Phoenix application. So maybe you can kind of give us an overview of what it was you were trying to do here. All of these comes because a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who has a Italian restaurant, she wanted to, well, she had a, a very old website. I told her that I was I was going to build for her, you know, like uh, this stunning website where she could edit every content she had. I always go for the <laughs> more complicated solution. And I love coding and front-end and back-end. And I'm a lot into Elm for the front-end. So I created like this 
a Webflow design generator where you can you know, create websites, where you can edit, insert different uh, nodes, text nodes, and whatever. So I created like this solution, but it didn't go too well. No? So I finally uh, created like a static site for her. The first year, she had, you know, like the menu and all the products and, you know, the schedule and everything. But this year, with the COVID, she had to, you know, to change a lot of stuff. Um, especially she had to change, you know, the, the menu and the products because they change every season. So she was constantly asking me to change everything, you know, and this wasn't scaling too well. Gosh, that brings me back to 2005 when I made uh, WordPress sites for, for other folks. And I, I chose WordPress because I didn't want to manage all those kinds of updates and, you know, what to put in the menu and updating prices and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's pretty cool. So the, the way that you, you've done this is that you got, to, you got to choose a language that you enjoy, Elixir, and then plug it into a nice backend for a customer, maybe a non-programmer, non-developer person to go in there and easily make updates without building the entire CMS you know, for them. That's pretty cool. That's the idea. So listening to an own podcast, uh, one of the, the speakers said, is the creator of Elm Pages, which is a static site generator built in Elm. And I remember that he said something like when, you know, in the build process of the site, if you could request data to an external API and that will, you know, like, like save the JSON and generate the static pages with that. And I say, well, perhaps I can do something with that, like this in, in Phoenix, if I have... You know, like like you say, David, an external service which offers you know the the admin UI that I don't have to work on it, and it's battle tested and you know and it's flexible, and that's how I started building it. That's really cool. I was wondering where the idea for this came from, and so it's interesting. So I'm aware of Elm. I have looked at it, especially when it first came out and it became very popular. And just kind of played with it, but I have I don't have any actual development experience with it. Really, I haven't built anything substantial. So you're mentioning Elm Pages, which is a statically typed site generator, and the idea of you know I could regenerate, rebuild my site, and at the time that I rebuild it, I could have it you know go fetch data from an external service to generate my site content, and then you maybe have a script or something that pushes that up and deploys it. You know that would be one way to do it, and you could. It's like well, let me. Let me help you, person who runs a restaurant and doesn't care about the technical details. Let me set up the script for you so you can run it and deploy it yourself. And you have to manage SSH keys or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. like that, I can totally see like that is not the solution that is going to be no. best for the <laughs> no. So, right. So I would love to hear. I think it's a perfect kind of segue into where you went with it then to uh, bring Phoenix into this. The idea of choosing Elixir and Phoenix is because it's my language that I use every day. I've been using Elixir for the last six years, so I'm very comfortable with it. I know that I can build something similar to this in a couple of days. So I did everything in a weekend. I already have all the styles, you know, all the stuff related to the UI. I already have that. I also wanted to try out a light view. In a, you know, in, in production because I've been playing with it in a couple of pet projects. I did a, an ant farm with Phoenix Live View where every ant is a process in Elixir which moves 
and you know, it's, they are rendered in the screen using live view. Oh, that was you. I I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I I remember actually seeing that. I didn't realize that that was you. Same thing, because I remember we were looking at that and playing with that at work. It's like, check this out. They're all individual processes. So I, <laughs> I think it's like, that's really cool. So now I, wow, I'm putting it all together. So one thing I just want to make sure uh, you, dear listener, are aware of, and we're going to have the links to this all in the show notes, but this is uh, what Ricardo has done is created a four-part blog series uh, with a lot of great detail and diagrams to really help kind of pull it all together mentally as to what's going on here. And I think it's a, a great resource, especially if you're wanting to try and uh, recreate something like this yourself. I just want to you know, thank you, Ricardo, for putting the effort and time into sharing this much detail and about the process and with the community because it helps us all grow and all become better. Thank you for that. Do check it out. We'll have links to that in the show notes. But one of the things I think I would like to understand better and kind of hear from you is this idea of, as I understand, it, you've got this Phoenix Live View process that you know, when a visitor comes to the website, they're going to come up and you're able to you know, display like the landing page or like the menu. And you know, you're wanting to be able to actually not use Ecto as your data storage. And you're saying, hey, I know about this thing called Airtable and I can just have the data that's going to be populated and put on the page pulled from this external service. And you know, like me, my first reaction to that would be, well, why would I want to do that? You know, that's just going to be uh, introduce a, a layer of complexity, another point where it could break. And so you brought up a great solution for that, partly because like what Cade pointed out is there at the free tier, there is rate limiting. You say, I can't take every request that comes in and directly turn around, make an API request and then come back and treat Airtable as my database. Can't do that exactly. So what was the uh, solution that you used to give resilience to that and so that you're not hitting them with every request? I think that the rate limit is for it's also for paid accounts. So the limit, I think, it's five requests per second, no matter if you are free or, or paid. You know? So and, and they specify that you have to figure out how to solve that. The idea was to every time a user visits a page, you like you, you know, asked for the necessary data to render that page. The like you, you know, it was in charge of uh, depending on the data received to paint it in, in the screen. It wasn't going to scale because of the rate limiting. And also, if there was an error or, or the HTML is down, you are not going to have you know, any content to show. I thought about, okay, so I can have a process, which is a gen server, because the cool thing about this is, like, is that uh, Erlang gives you a lot of cool solutions so that you don't have to use any external services like Redis or, or, or whatever. No? So I wanted to use all that I could use from, you know, from Elixir and Erlang. So the first solution was a gen server to have all the, you know, the content stored in its state. When the user visits the page, the module asks to the cache if it has the, you know, the content for this page. And if it has it, it returns it so it gets, uh, you know, rendered. If the content is not in the cache, then the content is fetched, you know, from a table, is inserted in the cache, and then it's rendered, okay? Let me see if I, I understand that, because I, I think it's really cool. It's a good solution, I think. So you're saying uh, a request comes in, it checks 
you have a gen server running that's managing an ETS cache. And it says, a request comes in and says, hey, I'd like to show the data for this page. And it goes to look up in the ETS cache and it says, is it there? And if it is there, then it just returns it immediately because it's just coming from memory and it renders the page. So you have like instant response time. If it's not there, or presumably if it's a certain age, you're saying, I want to make sure it stays fresh. But if it's not there, then I'm going to go actually request it from Airtable, pull it back, insert it into the cache, and then return, here's your data. You're using that, using ETS as a local in-memory cache, Airtable as the back-end long-term storage, and you're caching it, and that way you're able to stay within your five requests per second, but still have a very responsive, fast live view experience. So I think, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's really cool. It's, just, it's like, it takes the, the normal, like, uh, you know, Phoenix new experience where with some of the command line options with Phoenix and Mix, you know, Mix Phoenix new, you can say no Ecto and say, I don't want a database. And so you had to do that, presumably, because it's like, there's no, no Ecto repo. I'm just curious also as to what do your queries look like? Uh, where you're saying, hey, load me this data. Is that just uh, just a module function call? Because you're not doing ecto schemas, right? Or anything like that. What does that look like? I usually implement the repo, the repository. The repository pattern? Yeah, I usually implement the repository pattern where I have a, you know, a repository module, which is in charge of fetching the data. But this module relies on adapters, depending on the environment that you're working on. So for instance, in this case, uh, I have, uh, you know, for production, I have the HTTP adapter, which uses the Tesla client to fetch the data against a table. And for the tests and in development, there is an in-memory adapter, which is a gene server acting as the store. That way, you don't depend on the external service for your tests and for your development. I just have to say, your blog post inspired me because I was working on a project where I had some pretty simple data that I was storing, and I had spent you know weeks building out a custom backend to store the data, you know, building the edit pages and the view pages and the index pages, and then the database schemas and then you change your mind and have to migrate things. And I spent a lot of time just building out the back end and I went through your blog posts and I was like, oh, this is so much easier. And I just scrapped everything I had done basically and like rewrote it using Airtable as my back end and I was done in like an evening of work. It's it's so much less code that you don't have to deal with, right? Like I don't want to have to deal with and then uploading, I mean hopefully the Phoenix Live View uploads that should save a lot of time, but like I had to kind of write my own uploading and integrate it into S3. You know, you use Airtable as your backend, all that's done. I don't have to deal with it. And then one thing that actually impressed me with Airtable is when I went to fetch my data, they actually gave me back three different sizes of my photo. So there's a small, a medium, and a large thumbnail that I could use. And I was like, well, this is perfect. I don't even have to use image magic either. Like they're doing it all. <laughs> So I think that's a good point where we can uh, start to ask the question of where is this solution a good fit and where is like not a good fit? You know, I can, I can see potentially it being a great fit for something content that is generally very static, you know, like a restaurant menu doesn't change every minute, right? It's not, it's not like Twitter 
where it's like, oh, a price is, oh, new menu item. Ooh, you know, it's not like that, right? It's, it's, uh, it's pretty static. It might change from week to week or maybe a couple times a week, even maybe just monthly. Kate, I don't know if you can share any kind of thing about like the nature of the app that you were working on. Was it pretty static? Yeah, it's similar to his restaurant idea. It was just like a list of products that would, it doesn't necessarily change very often, but I mean, I set it up. Ricardo goes into like how he creates a sink and it sinks every second. And so like they could go in and edit a product image and literally one second later, which feels instantaneous, really, the product image would update. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a mostly static list of products that they could go in and flip toggles to inactivate them, to hide them or to archive them or, and it just had a price, a description, a title, an image. What I love about that approach is just like, like you were saying, Kate, is just this idea of the entire like admin backend. You're, you're just relying on Airtable and their whole user experience, like the login management is all around like the end user who's going to be using it. And it sounds like, you know, just from the screenshots I've seen from Airtable and everything, it looks like they have very, it's a nice UI layout with card style kind of appearances and just making it look easy. Is that right? Yeah, that's one of the interesting things they do. They have different views. So you can see it as a spreadsheet style, columns and rows, or you can change it to a grid view where every item is a card and they kind of lay it out really nice. And I ended up kind of copying that card style for my product listing page because it looks good. And I think there's another view. I don't remember. But it's cool how they kind of like created different views and you can hide different data in different views. I think it's it's a cool concept. So you could really set it up for your client, you know, whatever, however it made sense for them, make it easy for them to understand and to edit it. If they If they're used to spreadsheets, you can give them a spreadsheet view. If they're less used to that, you could give them a little card and then you click an edit button and it kind of pops up a modal instead, right? So it's a little more like an app that you're used to. So Ricardo, I'm curious to know what, like when you did some end user testing, did your friend, was she, was she happy with the result? This first solution that, that I, you know, like deployed, it was cool because, you know, and it was fast, but it had one issue that is that when she updated the data, the cache wasn't updating because it was only checking, you know, the, the repository was only checking if the data existed in the cache. If not, you know, like requesting an inserting, but once it was inserting the cache, it wasn't asking for the data anymore. So she wasn't very happy <laughs> because when she <laughs> edited, <laughs> you know, the menu, it wasn't showing the, the changes. I had to figure out a different solution which is what Kate mentioned. I start thinking about, okay, so instead of, you know, requesting the data from the view, why not make, you know, the, the cache to automatically, to, you know, to refresh automatically every, every second. So I have more control of the number of requests that I can do in a second, in five seconds. But instead of storing the data in, in the gene server state, I only wanted it to be in charge of uh, refreshing the data and to store it using ETS, which is the stands for Erlang Term Storage, which is something really cool from Erlang, which is basically uh, you know in memory storage, which is really fast and optimized and battle tested. 
What I did was when the cash process started, it created, you know, the, the necessary tables because there's, there's two, actually there's two caches, one for each page with different content, you know, one for the landing page and another one for the, for the blog posts. So every agent server, when, when it needs, it creates its own EDS table, which is protected, which means that the process which created them are the only ones which can edit or insert data. But any other process can read from it. In the original solution, where the agent server was in charge of storing the data, that could be a bottleneck, depending on the amount of requests that you have. But in this case, the ETS, uh, you know, is, is in, handles that efficiently. So you could, you could read the data from the user process, and this server, every second, would uh, request the data from a table, uh, create a hash of that data, store the hash in, in its state, and if that hash is different from the one it already has stored, it would insert all the data in, in its table, okay? In the end, the, the end result was that uh, when, you know, when, the, when she edited the data, every second, the, the page was updated with the data. According to just looking at your blog post, then you're broadcasting changes to the live view processes. So mm-hmm. I think that's like going above and beyond, right? You don't even have to like hit refresh on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like just sitting there, right. got her thing open. Maybe she, I don't, assuming she manages multiple tabs, she's like over here, makes a change, flips back, it's already updated. That's like awesome. Yeah, so one of the things I just want to kind of point out there. So you said you're using a gen server, which is owning an ETS table. So the gen server is responsible for making the requests and every second just having like a timer, like a send after one second, remind mm-hmm. wake up and go request some data. I love that idea of just like, then just computing a simple hash on the content. And if the hash is different from what I already have, then I know I can insert the data and into the ETS cache and broadcast that this has changed. So one of the ways I just, I just want to mention this uh, as a way of thinking about, so you mentioned it being the ETS tables in protected mode. I mean, there's many different options and ways to use an ETS table. And one of the ways I love is, is what you just outlined here. And I think of this, I think it's very helpful when you think about processes as people. And you like, when, if you've ever gone to an airport or a train station, you know, and you're looking at the listing of all of the times, the departures and the arrivals, if you just think about that as the ETS table of data, and you have all these different people, and they're all processes, and they can all concurrently read the same set of data. So everyone can consume it simultaneously looking at different entries, different parts of the table, but there's only one way that the data gets updated. And, you know, so an individual person can't go in there and like stuff in a new time that for like a departure, like, oh, move my time up. You know, you can't do that. So it's protected. And so like, I, I think that's a very helpful way to think about it, but I think there's a brilliant uh, application of it. And I just love the idea of automatically keeping the cache fresh and notifying and just keeping the page data live that way. Really elegant. I like that. So once you finished creating this gen server and syncing up the data and checking if it changed, you deployed it out and was your friend impressed? As she's not a, a tech person, I check the data and it changes. That's what I'm expecting. So it's nothing 
spectacular. So I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I wanted to use Lightview as well, because I wanted to use it. And to me, it's very cool to be in a table changing data and you know, watching the website to automatically update the content, which is re- really nice, no? And gives you really, uh, it, it gives you, you know, the, the feeling of that there is no boundaries between, you know, the, the, the backend and, and the frontend because you're like, it's reacting to your changes. So that's the cool thing about Lightning for this use case. At first, I was like a bit concerned about memory usage with Lightning, but it turned out that it wasn't consuming any memory at all. I think it's really cool. I mean, you don't have to use uh, LabVIEW for this. I did it because, because I could, so <laughs> why not? <laughs> that was something I took uh, that I, um, I was conscious of when I moved my blog over to LiveView was that the post content, I made sure to tag it as a temporary assign because it wasn't really important for me to keep in the process as memory. I just needed it to render and forget. And then when it gets the new broadcast that the content had updated, you know, go push it again, but don't actually hold it in the persistent state, you know, on the process. So even if you didn't do that, like, it's not really that much memory anyway. But if you had like, 10,000 visitors and all 10,000 of those connections were holding the same exact blog <laughs> blog post content, you know, which that might add up at uh, at scale, but you know, with with limited visitors is probably not a big deal. But it's it was such a easy thing to do, right? Just tag it as a temporary assign and then you don't have to worry about it. So one of the things I think is awesome about this series of blog posts is like for you, dear listener, like some of the things that I think you would find interesting and knowledge that you can gain from this is you're talking about gen servers and getting example code, be able to play with those, learning about ETS tables, uh, learning about live view, learning about Airtable, and it's complete with a demo app and GitHub source code, which is an awesome way to start. And I think it's a great blueprint and it's kind of like a manual for building something similar yourself. So a lot of us tech people have a friend that's like, oh, can you just help me with my little website? Lots of times these are small business owners. You know, they're not, they don't even have like employees. You know, they might be, you know, maybe it's a piano lessons or something like just all types of people have little business information they'd like to be able to have out there and share. And we want to, you know, we're tech people. They come to us, they ask for help. We'd love to be able to help them, but we don't necessarily want to spend all of our time building this uh, and then maintaining it long term. I think this is a great way to kind of jump in and get started really fast with something, letting them manage the content through Airtable. You've basically given us like a, a walkthrough template of here's how you can set up a like a business landing page, product listing page, Ricardo, now you having done this, are there any other cases where you think this would be a really good example, a good use for someone to apply that you've already thought like, oh, this would be really good for this kind of a situation or business or something? I mean, sky is the limit. I guess it all depends on the contract that you create between Airtable and your application and how to deal with the problems no about requesting so so many data or having to have to manage uh, many different tables in a table uh, i don't know nice and i think the alternative that people would normally go for is something like wordpress you know that that's the alternative uh, 
which is a good solution for a lot of people and a lot of situations. But uh, when you're wanting to build something custom, and like David, how you mentioned setting up WordPress sites for other people so that they can be the managers of that content. So I think it's a great solution because LiveView is a great opportunity to bring in some more reactive style content that isn't necessarily a natural fit with web WordPress. So I think it's just a, it's a fun, interesting combination of technology, something I hadn't seen before. Uh, and I just thought people would enjoy that. Thank you for sharing that. I'd say for me, it, it scratches my itch of like needing a WordPress-esque solution, but in a language that I want to work in. I've been looking for a long time for some kind of like CMS solution. I guess Phoenix is just still new enough that nobody's really built some training wheels, batteries included solution for this. And so this kind of scratches that itch for me. It gives me a really quick way to get something up and running without having to build a whole back end and everything to manage your products or your items that you're trying to list. So it's, it's just like a way to kind of skirt that problem, but use Elixir and get up and running in a weekend. Well, Ricardo, if people are interested in learning more about you, what you're working on or following you online, where's the best way to do that? I, I have a lot of uh, tutorials on my website and my blog which is goldloveandboards.com. You can also follow me at GitHub at Bigarboni, same as in Twitter. You can also find me in Elixir Slack with the same nickname. Nice, and we will have links to those in the show notes. Please check those out. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.